Well, good morning. I uh, <clears throat> love feast is right after the sermon, so for fear of my life, I'm going to jump right in and try not to go too long. In Greek mythology, there's a tale of a character named Sisyphus, and he was a king of Ephra. King Sisyphus, he was crafty, he was clever, and he was deceitful. Once, when he was to be put in chains in the underworld, he actually tricked the god of death into chaining himself up instead. Sisyphus thought himself even more clever than Zeus. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that that is a no-no. So Zeus punished Sisyphus in his own clever way by forcing him to push a boulder up a hill for all eternity, and he cursed that boulder so that when he got to the top of the hill, the boulder would come rolling back down and he would have to start all over, and this was for eternity. This story is so ingrained in history that anything that's frustratingly never-ending or pointless is described as Sisyphean. So this guy's name has been turned into an adjective for futility and meaninglessness. So this gets us to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to go through the entire book um, very quickly for an entire book of the Bible. And we're going to see that the depressing message of Ecclesiastes is that life is Sisyphean. It's futile and it's pointless. I want you to hang with me till the end because if we stop there, that would be bad. There is a ray of hope in Ecclesiastes and we're going to look elsewhere in the Bible to provide a little bit of context for Ecclesiastes. But we're going to go through it as it's written so we feel the weight of it and feel it the way the author intended it and the way the author wrote it. So with that, let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, we come to you asking for humility before your word. We've confessed our sin. We've admitted our helplessness. We need you. As sinners, we are completely unable to take one word of the Bible to heart. We pray that your spirit would come and open our minds and hearts to the truth of your word. We pray your blessing now on both the preaching and the hearing of the word. Amen. So Ecclesiastes is part of what's called in the Bible wisdom literature or the wisdom book. So the other ones are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon, and, and then Ecclesiastes. They're written from an individual perspective, so they're usually a little closer, a little more intimate. And those observations hit a little bit closer to home for us. There's some overlap in the types of things that you see among the books. So, for example, Ecclesiastes is a different book than Proverbs, but Ecclesiastes itself has some Proverbs in it, has some proverbial wisdom. So some of the things that you may uh, even know without having Bible familiarity from the book of Ecclesiastes, some of the Proverbs, you get, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't be hasty with your words and let them be few. Uh, you go out of the world the same way you came in or you can't take it with you. Don't worry too much concerning what others say about you. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. 
Obviously, that's a big theme in Job as well. In that same category, you get the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. The idea that the best don't always win and the hardest workers aren't always the most prosperous. So you see why this is depressing just a little bit? So, and my favorite, uh, in chapter 10, verse 1, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So we often hear this one as one mistake can, can ruin a man. So these are some of the proverbs that we find in Ecclesiastes. It kind of ties it into the other books. Some of these have become so cliched that we're familiar uh, with them without even knowing uh, the Bible. But even with these similarities, it has one major difference, one thing that separates it from the other wisdom books and even from the books in the rest of the Bible. That is that this book is depressing. It is the Debbie Downer of Bible books. If you don't know who Debbie Downer is, go on YouTube. It's negative. It's cynical. I'm beginning to see why... You guys had me preach this sermon. I think maybe it's some form of church discipline. Now, in all seriousness, the book is very cynical, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. You're probably not going to be writing uh, Ecclesiastes verses on post-it notes and sticking them on your mirror or putting them in notes for your kids uh, to read at school. You would ruin their day uh, with most of the verses in this book. But that doesn't mean that the book is not imminently and infinitely helpful to us as Christians. So, we're going to jump in. Open with me to the first chapter. We're going to read several verses scattered throughout the book. And I'm, I've tried, for the most part, to keep them in order so you're not bouncing all over the place. And we're going to have the text, uh, the major text, up here. So follow along with me as we read. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, stop. So, who is this? Who are we talking about here? There's some debate in scholarly circles, but traditionally this is understood uh, to be Solomon. This makes sense. Solomon is both a son of David and he was a king in Jerusalem. So this is important. It's not only important to our sermon today, but it would have been important to the original intended audience of this book. Because he brings a certain credibility given the particular content of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to talk about that in more detail in a minute. Alright, continuing on. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now this word translated vanity is pretty much the key to understanding the entire book. It's used 35 times in these 12 relatively short chapters. When we think of vanity, we usually think of someone having a quality of being a little too taken with oneself, or maybe they are overly concerned with their appearance or their status. That's not what Solomon's after here at all when he says vanity. The word is literally translated to mean vapor or smoke. So if we go from that literal translation, we want to think of it as something that's insubstantial or something that doesn't last. For the sake of our sermon today, we're going to translate it as meaningless or futile. So you'll hear me interchange those with this idea of vanity. So he's saying meaningless meaningless, all is meaningless. So what falls under the category of meaningless? Solomon says all. So everything? Yep, pretty much. That's what he's going to say. So 
he says, he sums it up in the end of chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Then he spends the rest of the book fleshing that out. So let's continue through the book and see what the different categories and how all-encompassing this really is. Alright, so in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So he's saying everything continues to happen as it always has. Nothing changes, nothing is new, and those who come later won't even remember what happened before. This sets the foundation or the tone for the book. And now he's going to move on, he's going to jump into specifics. So what falls under that category of all? Let's see what examples he gives us. The uh, second, at the, towards the very end of chapter 1, what about wisdom? Wisdom seems to be a noble trait. It seems to be something that we should all pursue. Solomon says in the second part of verse 16 through verse 17, he says, And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. What about fame? That's something that's uh, held in particularly high regard in our culture. So chapter 2, the first part of verse 9, he says, So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me. And then look at the second part of verse 11. And behold... All was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. For the hedonists in the room, what about pleasure? Chapter 2, verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. He says, I worked hard, and my reward for that hard work, whatever I wanted. And then again, in the second part of verse 11... Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What about work? Seems like a noble uh, thing to, to put your hand to a task, to a trade, to accomplish something. In chapter 2, verse 22, he asks another rhetorical question. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? He answers in verse 23. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. This also is vanity. He even says in verse 21, what's the point? Everything I work for is going to be left to someone else anyway. Chapter 3, verse 19. He bemoans life itself. He says, 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. What about justice? Another high and noble pursuit. Certainly, this is something we can take comfort in, right? I mean, it's justice. That's way better than fame or pleasure. So certainly this is one, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Solomon says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. He goes on to say in verse 2 and 3 that both the dead and those uh, never born are better off than those who don't have justice. What about wealth? Verse 5 and 10. He who loves money. uh, Chapter 5, verse 10. My apologies. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So wealth is out. So what do we make of all this? First of all, I think you have to ask the question, is it true? And remember earlier I said that Solomon brings a unique credibility to the content of the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's look at Solomon for a little bit and let's look at what's unique about him and his ability to speak to this subject. So first off, Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived. He was famous. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 tells us how the queen of Sheba, famous in her own right, heard of the fame of Solomon and came to test him with hard questions. And she says in verses 6 and 7, says, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. So Solomon was actually, he was famous and he was wise and he was famous for being wise. Um, They had higher standards for fame back then. Um, What about pleasure? Remember in chapter 2, he took whatever he wanted and he kept his heart from no pleasure. According to 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 3, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, to think of Solomon going through the whole song of Solomon song and dance a thousand times takes a little bit of the romance out of it, uh, at least for me. What about work? In 1 Kings 9 and 10, we see that he was savvy at trade and commerce, and he made the kingdom more prosperous. He was wealthy. How wealthy was he? 1 Kings 10.14 tells us that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. One talent, roughly 75 pounds. Gold is currently at $1,200 an ounce, so that means one talent would be worth $1.5 million. But he had 666 talents. So 666 times 1.5... This is America. We're, we're terrible at math. Um, it's just under a billion dollars. Okay. And that's one year. So just under a billion dollars just from gold in one year. He also had his inheritance from his father, King David. He levied heavy taxes on the people. 
He received tributes from other nations and he received gifts. The queen of Sheba, who we mentioned earlier, brought him 120 talents of gold, which was $180 million worth, along with spices and precious jewels. So he's got $180 million of gold, plus a bunch of rubies and emeralds and whatnot from one gift. His wealth was incalculable. To give you an idea of how poshly he lived, 1 Kings 21 tells us that his drinking vessels, thats those are cups to you and me, his drinking vessels were made of gold. If my cups were made of gold, I'd probably call them drinking vessels too. None of them were of silver. Silver, and this is right out of the text, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Wait, hold on a second. So he had so much gold that the relative value of silver was nothing? Homeboy was loaded. Okay, so why does this give him credibility to speak to the content of Ecclesiastes and to make this argument that everything is meaningless? It's because he had everything. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He was a great businessman, or that's probably too small of a word, maybe magnate or tycoon, something like that. He was famous. He was wealthy beyond measure. He'd been around the block. He'd experienced everything the world had to offer, and he came away from that saying that his life was meaningless. Maybe maybe you have a hard time wrapping your brain around Solomon. Maybe it's the being terrible at math, we can't convert from talents uh, of gold to money. Maybe you can't relate to someone who was king of Israel over 3,000 years ago. So let me give you a more contemporary example. Personally, I think this person pales in comparison to Solomon, but he's culturally relevant. And while not to the same degree, he has some of the same attributes as Solomon. So let's consider Tom Brady. His net worth is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. He's on the cover of magazines, both sports and fashion. He's won four Super Bowls. As many as any other quarterback in NFL history in an American culture where there is no higher achievement than being a sports champion. Here's what he had to say in a 60 Minutes interview in 2005. At the time, he'd only won three Super Bowls. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, gosh, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? When asked by the interviewer, what's the answer? His response, I wish I knew. Now, maybe the fourth Super Bowl did it for him. Maybe that put him over the edge. Somehow, I doubt it. But this man who has accomplished so much by today's standards, the standards that we have in this country, he looked at his life and he said, this is it? He has everything that the world has to offer and he's unsatisfied with it. So what's the point? Solomon had everything the world had to offer and found it meaningless. Same story with Tom Brady. The myth that I want us to just blow out of the water today is the myth that says, if I just had blank, my life would have meaning. If I just had 
the perfect spouse, if I just had money, if I just had a fulfilling career, whatever you put in that blank, there is no appropriate thing to fill it. This world, nothing in this world is going to make your life meaningful. Don't take my word for it. Take Solomon's word for it. Take God's word for it. Not only do we see in this idea in Ecclesiastes, we see it in Romans as well. So keep your, if you're flipping along in your Bible, keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. And let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And in verse 20, we see, For the creation, this world, was subjected to futility. Now, this word that's translated from the Greek in Romans 8.20 to mean futility is the same word that when translated from Hebrew to Greek is the word that Solomon uses for vanity in Ecclesiastes. So Paul is using the same word that Solomon used. And I don't think that that is an accident. So you could accurately translate Romans 8.20 the way that we've been translating vanity in Ecclesiastes. You could translate it to say, for this world was subjected to meaninglessness. So this leads us, at least it leads me to say, okay, why? What's the problem here? Why is life meaningless and why is creation subjected or why was it subjected to futility? The answer to that question, the good biblical answer to that question is sin. As believers, we believe that the corruption of mankind by sin is the result of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. So we believe that we inherited their guilt and we inherited their sin nature. And not only are we conceived in sin, but as soon as we come into this world, we begin this futile life that Solomon has been testifying about. For the unbelievers who happen to be here, maybe you don't believe in sin. Maybe you think the biblical idea of sin is bull. Maybe you don't like the Bible's explanation for why things are the way that they are. But if you look around you, you cannot deny that they are the way that they are. You can't deny that Solomon's testimony rings true. We see futility and brokenness all around us. Scripture testifies to the meaningless of life and the futility of creation. Okay, great. So what do we do with that? Is that it? We close up and go eat? That would be a depressing meal, um, for me at least. So are we without hope? As Paul would say, by no means are we without hope. Solomon offers one qualification in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we saw it a couple of times as we were trekking through uh, the few verses that we read. The phrase is, this qualifying phrase is, under the sun. And what does it mean? It means in this world. So everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything is futile in this world. This is similar to what Paul is getting at when he says that creation, this world, was subjected to futility. So where's the hope part of this? It's outside of this world. Solomon peppers this notion in a few places throughout 
Ecclesiastes sparingly, um, not to damper the overall depressing tone, but it is there. So everything in this world is meaningless, but if you hop back quickly to Ecclesiastes with me, we can see where he offers a little bit of expansion on this. So chapter 3 in verse 14. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. He contrasts what man does versus what God does. What man does is vapor. The life that man leads is meaningless under the sun. What God does endures forever. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the middle part of verse 2, he continues to make this point. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, making that distinction between God and man. And then in chapter 12, he brings it home. In verse 1, he says, remember also your creator. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, the end of the matter... All has been heard. Basically, he's walked through why life is meaningless and he's covered all these categories. And being Solomon, he's established his credibility to do so. And he said, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon takes comfort in the reality that God will make everything right. There's no justice under the sun. There is justice with God. Paul, too, holds to this same hope. So flip back, Romans 8. Let's start reading in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God and daughters of God. He's speaking of believers here. For the creation was subjected to futility, there it is again, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So look at the contrast that Paul makes here. He's starkly contrasting the suffering of this meaningless life under the sun with the glory that is yet to be revealed to believers. So he captures the spirit of Ecclesiastes with this idea of eager longing and groaning in childbirth. Things may be painful now. Things may be meaningless now. But we are to wait eagerly with hope. Why? Because in this hope, we are saved. This is the gospel, folks. Because of our sin, there is no hope in this world. There is no hope under the sun. Our only hope 
is to be found in Christ. We believe in His death. We put our hope in His resurrection that our sins may be covered and that we may have eternal life. Paul's version of under the sun is in the flesh. And he tells us in Romans 8 verses 5 through 6 that those who live according to the flesh or under the sun set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, is this how we live? Do we think of life according to the world as death? Do we see things in the same stark contrast in which the Bible presents them to us? Our best life now, (laughs) our best life is not in this world. Solomon was clear. Even the best lives according to this world are ultimately meaningless. He proved that. Fame, wealth, wisdom, meaningless. Our best life is yet to come. This is our hope as believers in Christ. So how do we navigate the things of the world as believers? How do we put all these things in the proper context? How do we enjoy the things under the sun as Christians? Well, that's another sermon and we're not going to talk about it today. So I'll let you know when somebody else is going to, is going to preach that when we don't have time. But to the unbelievers here, Solomon's testimony, it resonates. You feel it. You feel the weight of the futility and the meaningless. I know this. I've been where you are. For the younger believers in particular, don't make the mistake of thinking that it will be different for you. You may be thinking, Solomon is a clown and Tom Brady is a chump. Maybe, maybe you're a Jets fan. I don't know. Um, who, who are they and what do they know? When I make it, things will be different for me. It won't be. <laughs> it's going to be exactly the same for you as it's been for every other person who did not put their hope in Christ. Don't learn the lesson the hard way. They say you learn from your mistakes, but even better than that is to learn from the experience of someone else, to learn from the mistakes of someone else. Solomon experienced it all, and at the end of his chronicle of the meaninglessness of life, he expressed that our ultimate hope should be in God. The only thing this this world offers us is a life like Sisyphus, pushing our boulder up that hill. It doesn't matter how fast we do it. It doesn't matter how good we look when we're doing it. It doesn't matter how blinged out the boulder is. It's ultimately meaningless. In fact, for the unbeliever, the boulder will crush you, kill you, and send you to hell. There is no eternity of rolling that boulder like Sisyphus. So what do we do? Look to the top of the hill. See the cross. It's the only thing that keeps you from rolling back down. I'll, uh, I think we're good for lunch, just in case anybody's wondering. Um, I'll close with this because there, there's no better way to do it. I wish I could have come up with something this great on my own, but I can't. So Jim Elliott, uh, he was a missionary to the Hurani people of Ecuador. 
And he backed up the words that I'm about to read to you by dying for his faith, by giving his life in service to Christ. And he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This life is something that we cannot keep. But the hope that we find in Christ is something that we will never lose. Let's pray.